Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. For our international listeners, the podcast will be held mostly in English. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 50, recorded December 17, 2021. My guest today is Philip Kaiser, president and partner at Marion Goodman Galleries Worldwide. He also recently prepared the extensive exhibition, archive and library about the life and work of Harald Seemann at the Getty. He was curator of the Swiss Pavilion for the 2017 Venice Biennial and served as curator at the Museum for Gegenwartskunst in Basel, as well as senior curator at the MOCA in Los Angeles. And last but not least, Philipp was director of Museum Ludwig in Cologne from 2012 to 2014. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Hi, Philipp. Such a pleasure to have you. Hi, Daniela. Thanks so much for inviting me. Philipp. Looking at your resume, it seems really there's nothing you didn't do as curator and art historian, and your professional stations can be found online, but there's very little to be found about you personally, your background, and your own story. <laughs> and I'd be very curious to learn more about this. So how did you grow up? How did art enter your life? And especially what drives you? What is the energy behind your relentless pursuing new projects, new art, new opportunities? Well, where should I start? At the beginning. At the very beginning. So I had the privilege. It was a privilege when I looked back later in time, but I had the privilege to grow up in a small city with the name. It's called Bern in Switzerland, the capital. It's a very small city. But when I grew up, my family didn't really have anything to do with art or academia. But there was a very interesting constellation in the late 80s when Ulrich Loeb, you know, took over the Kunsthalle in 1986, and Joseph Helfenstein, he was a young curator at the Kunstmuseum, and I entered the art world mentally, I would say, in the late 80s, 88, when I was like 16. I was kind of curious to find like an alternative existence for myself, and at that time, it was very different than nowadays. I think art or art history wasn't really a career option at the time, you know, it wasn't really... Oh, I, I wasn't really the person who wanted to go to an opening. It wasn't so much a lifestyle decision at the time. I was shy. I had a drawing teacher in high school and he gave us like a card that we could go anonymously to the Kunsthalle and we didn't have to pay. And it was really amazing for me because I just went there. I didn't talk to the people at the, you know, when you entered and felt intimidated, like other people also feel intimidated nowadays when they go to a gallery or to yeah. a museum. And I just went to see all these exhibitions. And when I look back, you know, I saw, well, that was a little later, that was 1992, was Michael Asher at the Kunsthalle. But when, when Ulrich was there, it was kind of my mother milk. And he showed like amazing artists. He showed Bob Gober. I remember like an early uh, soloid wall drawings, Charlie Ray. That was in the early 90s. It was a very good time and context. And I have to say, growing up in Switzerland, I had to move to California to realize how privileged the fabric of all these institutions and museums, Kunsthallers yes. and galleries was and how many artists, you know, I've seen just by going around. And then I started to study. I was more interested in literature. I studied literature, German literature, exactly. And then 
that was my starting point. And then I realized after half a year that I'm much more interested in art history. And at that time, you know, I moved to Basel. I studied there. I studied also in Hamburg, went back to Basel. And it was kind of like um, great circumstances. You know, I didn't really know that Basel was this art city because no one told me, but intuitively I wanted to go there. And then I wanted to go to Hamburg because of Abi Warburg. I was really obsessed with his writings. And um, the art history department was very good there. But you said you went to Bern to the Kunsthalle when you were like a teenager and you had no idea about art before. So that that must have touched you really deeply. It was not so much an academic thing. You said you were looking for an alternative life. I think it was. You know, it wasn't that my parents were against art or were questioning it. I mean, they were very supportive. And when you grew up in Bern, there are like three major artists that you grew up with. And it's on one hand, Merit Oppenheim, Ferdinand Hodler, and Paul Klee. You know, the whole city is infused with these three artists. And I think when you grow up there, it's a small city, but I look back and I see, I mean, we know the story and it's kind of a coincidence that like many, many years later, the Getty invited me to co-curate the Harald Zeman show. And Harald Zeman's career started in the late 60s at Kunsthalle Bern. So it's full circle. It's totally full circle. And I do that. <laughs> it's so crazy that the Getty in Los Angeles, where I live, acquired the archive and I circled back to Bern. To, to my own beginnings. So that was kind of a little surreal, but it was it was very interesting. And then and then you know, I left Bern and I kind of hated it in your early 20s, you're very judgmental. But then I started to work. I worked on as an intern uh, in the Paul Clay Foundation, and I worked as an intern during my studies on a Joseph and Annie Albers exhibition in the mid-90s. And I, I started to write for art magazines, and then one thing happened after the other. So I was always very driven. I don't know, it was like a passion. Exactly. You did so many things. We will probably cover some of them, but it's not possible to cover all of them because it's like station and station and station. And then it seems like you work with a whole world. And that is exceptional. You need to have a certain energy to follow through and to have a passion. And it can't just be an academic, like a, just a mental, mm -hmm. intellectual passion. There must be more that drives you. No, totally. And, you know, I think the energy it takes, the energy it gives you, mm -hmm. you know, what you do. And I think I have to say, when I look back, I always thought, oh, I, I want to go in academia, becoming a professor. And my professors encouraged me to do that. And I struggled with where should I fit in? And it's kind of interesting. You know, I'm actually a, like a very steady person. But when I look <laughs> at what I've done in the past, it's like everything, you know, I also worked in 1996. Seven, I think it was, or 1998, Peter Bloyer, the director of Liste, the Young Art Fair, it just started and it was like the second or third edition. And he asked me, do you want to work with me just for a year? And I said, yes. And I learned so much because that was also the time when Foxhall Gallery showed for the first time. Yeah. Many, many great art, art galleries were there. I know I didn't really want to go pursue like the commercial Uh, or art fair trajectory, but it felt interesting as an interesting opportunity. And I was just open enough to try it out and to see what it is. Like from the very beginning, I was always interested in acting as a critic, as a curator, but be open enough and talk to artists. Mm -hmm. And so the doors just opened also for you because it seems like people just also let you in or ask you things to join in. And did you always... Did you just say, oh, that's great, that's an opportunity? You know, I have to say, when I look back, 
and and sometimes you hire people mm-hmm. then you realize there aren't that many people that are active and that are really dedicated to what they do that's true but also you have to be like in the right context and i remember when i was in basel i was like in my late 20s and peter parkish was at the kunsthal and he did an amazing job you know he brought in all these people from all these artists from los angeles in the mid 90s or late 90s and he was the person who recommended me to mendes burgi who just started at the kunstmuseum whose exhibition in Zurich, I've, I've all, I mean, I saw all of them at the Kunsthalle, and it was a lot of Marion Goodman artists at the time, Pierre Rieck, Gabriela Rosco, Steve McQueen. I saw all their shows in the 90s, and now I'm also circling back with Marion, you know, to something that I experienced 25 years ago. And it's kind of interesting how these things bounce back and forth and how in, in the very end, how small the art world also is. In one hand, yes. In one hand, it's really small, but I think it's expanding all the time. It is definitely a, a very different art world from the art world in the 80s or 90s when you started. Oh, absolutely. And I have to say, you know, there were no curatorial classes. Mm-hmm. I heard of the De Apple and Bart. Those were the only two programs existing at the time. Even like the choice to be interested in contemporary art, it wasn't an option at the university It stopped with minimalism, pop art and then minimalism. And that was kind of the end. And from time to time, there was a seminar about Cindy Sherman or, mm. you know, something like that. It was a very, very different time. But I think that also made it attractive for me to find my own path and to say, well, I'm interested in modernism. I'm interested also in Renaissance art, but technically I want to move forward in the contemporary field. It wasn't a clear career option at the time or maybe you know it's hard to, for me to judge that because maybe i was just standing too far out of the context to realize if it wasn't a career option i mean if your parents for example would have been participants of that discourse mm-hmm. then maybe you have a completely different trajectory yeah absolutely and that is so interesting you know you seem to be like in interviews for example you seem to be really straightforward and you exude a lot of clarity But mm-hmm. I think it needs also a lot of sensitivity to install a collection. For me, it was a really enlightening way you did, for example, at Museum Ludwig, but also other exhibitions. And so the process you're going through, how can I imagine that process and create an exhibition? The initial impulse is that like coming from a mental point of view or more visually, emotionally, physically, intuitively, how, how do you go about I think it's all, you know, I think mm-hmm. I always wanted, if I'm thinking about exhibitions, I always think, okay, A, what needs to be done? B, what do I want to see? Mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but I, I'm frank enough to admit that. I think the best shows are the ones that you want to see yourself. Then you're kind of resistant and you only do what your passion or mm-hmm. what your curiosity allows you to do. We know now, I mean, especially in the last few years, you know, the point of view of the curators or the point of view of something that's being presented to you is highly subjective. So I think you can have it, you can have an analytical and smart art historical point of view. It still remains subjective. And so I'm more than happy to admit that. But I think with many of these shows, I try to to set it up as like a test to fully understand what I'm working on. And I have to say, I mean, maybe two examples are interesting for that. For example, when I applied for the 
the Museum of Contemporary Art, Paul Schimmel called me one day when I was in Basel and said, we really want you to be the curator, senior curator at MoCA. Mm-hmm. Connie Butler left for MoMA. Would you be interested? And so I had to I had to submit all these proposals. What, a, what exhibition would you do? Mm-hmm. And so one of the exhibitions was land art. And I was never particularly interested in land art because I felt it's too convoluted. It's too complicated. How do you show that? It was more like a an interesting task for me to just put it up there. And I wasn't emotionally attached to what I was doing. I just use it as a tool. It's like you find a tool in front of you and you say, okay, what could I do with this tool? Or how can I get further with this tool, with using the tool? Oh. Or for example, working with, I did two big shows with Louise Lawler and I think Louise, but also another artist whose work I really appreciate, Christian Philip Muller, organized a big kind of comprehensive retrospective with his work. And their work really allowed me to see and to reflect what I'm doing as a curator. You know, that nowadays, you know, the word curator is so diluted. People think it's about authority and it's about selecting, but it's not about selecting a curator. In the US, they use handpicked music. They say, for example, like handpicked, and curating, you can curate like a song list, you can curate anything. But curating, I see it much more as editing. It's like putting a film together, putting something coherent together, making an argument that's three-dimensional in space and has to be perceived with a physical body that walks through an exhibition and the brain attached to the body. And I think this is really interesting. It's not about the authority of the selecting, but I think at the moment it's the whole notion of a curator gets really discredited. Well, actually, it is defined by the people who are doing it. So what a curator is can be defined by anybody who is uh, curating. And I find that very interesting because you're right. It kind of like got almost like a bad taste to it, like curator. Mm-hmm. And this editing moment you just mentioned, I find that gives it another twist. What would you then say What is your role as a curator when you put an exhibition together? What is the, the most important thing to start with and to get on with it? Well, I think, of course, there is a moment of power because it's about visibility and granting visibility. You're in this position, but on the other hand, it's highly situational. What you can show, what has been shown before, mm. what is going to be shown elsewhere really determines what you do. So you have to be very smart. That's one lesson I learned. You know, the context and the timing is everything. It's not so much about what it is. It's about where do you insert it and what do you show to whom? At what time? At what time? Exactly. I think that's always important what needs to be done. Where is the urgency to show something? And I think the best shows, they happen, you know, thinking, for example, about the legacy of land art in the late 60s, early 70s. And combining it as an echo for all the environmental concerns we have now, some of it is a misunderstanding. Robert Smithson, for example, was never interested in environmentalism, but mm-hmm. there are some echoes that make it attractive. And I mean, that's the best, let's say that's the best scenario, you know, mm-hmm. if that happens. When it comes to timing, you said several things. And one thing is that it's important to understand that history is being in flux and that things can't be carved in stone. And so Mm -hmm. I think all art and culture is reinterpreted all the time anyway. Even the 
the so-called masterpieces in the past can be considered unimportant at some other time and vice versa. And how do you see your role then in that fluidity of history in time? Because this is also a thing you can do. Things can become definitely more relevant through visibility. For example, what you think right now is like really the important thing that has to be visible. It's interesting what you're saying, because, you know, when you look back in history, for example, an amazing painter like Holbein the Younger, mm -hmm. he was completely irrelevant. He was like German Renaissance. And then in the late 19th century, people got interested in his work again. And I think this is so unbelievable when you look back. And that's also the lesson you learn when you look at history, that certain things, they come in waves. Yeah. I have to say, when I mentioned the context before, the context is also the institution where you do a show. Is it at the gallery? Is it at the museum? Is it at the Kunsthalle? Where is the Kunsthalle? What have people seen before? You create a narrative. But I got more and more in the beginning. I was very interested in realizing projects with artists, also to be close to production. But then the older I got, I realized there's so much, as you say, in flux and so many pieces of history Even if we think we know what we're talking about, they haven't been written. Mm -hmm. I started to get really interested in the notion of like historicizing, not art movements, but certain constellations, historical constellations. I think it's not a coincidence that I did. I did initially a lot of shows about kind of like the pictures generation. I worked mm -hmm. with Lawler. I worked with um, Richard Prince, with, with uh, Cindy Sherman. I did with Jim Welling, with many of the Jack Goldstein show. But then I realized this moment of the late 70s, early 80s that I was very obsessed with for, for a while, I realized, oh, let's go back 10 years and look at this, that the year 1969 and how like a conceptual paradigm of the 60s turned into the 70s and also got institutionalized to a certain degree. And so I was doing all these shows. I also co-curated an exhibition with Christina Vega at the Kestner about CalArts the famous art school in California, CalArts in the 70s. And CalArts was this school that, you know, in their curriculum, they set up, there were these two components like feminism and conceptualism that got maybe for the first time institutionalized in an educational context. And we all know that, you know, Judy Chicago, for example, set up her feminist art classes and feminist art program. I worked on this show I did the Land Art Show in the late 60s. I worked on Harold Zeman, which dealt with the late 60s, early 70s. I worked on an early Lothar Baumgarten show that opened at Marion Goodman Gallery in New York. And it was really interesting to work at the same time on the same, from different angles on a historical constellation and to realize, you know, not to look at the scandalous 60s and what happened and how groundbreaking it was like you know if you talk about early conceptualism but to see how did conceptualism turn into mainstream and to just capture this moment you know like Lawrence Wiener who recently passed away he said to me once he said you know Philip it's not about who is first it's about who is the second <laughs> it's interesting right because he has he was totally right because the first one the first artist puts out an idea and the second one kind of confirms the idea that it's there and he kind of sets a paradigm or starts setting a paradigm. He brings it into the world, really. Totally. And I think this is really the moment where I thought, you know, I was told as a young art historian, the 70s is like transitional period and it's boring. And I completely disagree. I think it's one of the most interesting periods, you know, how things shift and how 
socially, art historically, artistically. We don't sometimes even realize how much from art, which probably was at that time regarded to be difficult or to be elitist or far away from the people, how much of that trickles into mainstream culture. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is, I can't even remember where he wrote it, but Roland Barthes once said that all you do in your life is trying to find out what happened around your birth year. <laughs> oh, and I believe that is true because it's like every 20 years, you know, it's like the young artists, they look back on the, At time, the time when they were born. The time when they were born. And you see, oh, it's a backlash to the 60s, to the 70s. Now it's starting with the 90s. I know. I think it's a really like a subconscious narcissism somehow. <laughs> do you think it's narcissism or do you think just we just rely on those? They are so ingrained like in our being, the times when we were too small even to think that we just soak it up. No, this is exactly what it is. It's really to understand, to get an understanding. In my case, I think it has when I look back mm. and I did all this 70 show and I think it's really about understanding what happened, what was generating the context that we're living in, mm -hmm. but I was too small to grasp and to understand what was going on at the time. But what are the paradigms that were being established at the time? I think maybe that's what it's about. Yeah, I mean, I think always that art is so much about our humanity, and I can't say it often enough, you know, that we really learn who we are mm -hmm. through art also, through dealing with art, to looking at artists when they make it, you know, we when we exhibit it or we, we see it. And this is also a phenomenon because people always think that curators, for example, that they think a lot about art, you know. Mm -hmm. But I think that the seeing it and the physical experiencing it is as much a part of making an exhibition. And this was like, for example, at Museum Ludwig, when I went there, I had an intellectual experience, but I also had a very visual and physical experience or in other good exhibitions, you know. And so you obviously have the capacity to install exhibitions in a certain way, which is very convincing. Is that an intuitive doing, or do you think a lot about that, or talk a lot about this with the people who install or with the artists? How, how do you handle that? Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for the compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I think being a curator, and that's what really bothered me when I was young, I wanted to, I thought, am I a museum mm. person? Am I an academic? It was such a hard decision for me to make. And then I realized, well, I can be both, you know, because as a curator, you have to have some, I don't know if you want to call it creativity, but it is an intuitive. The word you chose, like intuition mm -hmm. is exactly what it's about. Art is always visual. It's about ideas, but it's also about objects in space. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It is really how you crawl, like the phenomenological component of how you move through a space You know, like when you look back at artists, like let's say Richard Serra, how he was thinking about how space determines the body and the body reacts, how he walks through a space. I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think for my exhibitions, I'm interested in art that touches you. But if it just touches you and makes you numb. No, that's also not enough. Yeah, exactly. That's not, that's not the plan. But of course, there has to be this visually or emotionally compelling I remember when I was young, you know, when you're younger, you're more open because you haven't seen that much. And there's, there's certain exhibitions when I think about them, you know, that really hit you. And after I saw them, they gave me a very like uplifting feeling. I, I don't know. It's kind of a transcendental moment that you feel life is so much bigger than who you are, who you think you are. And this moment, I mean, if you have this kind of special effect or effect, 
that's kind of the best that you can have. And I, of course, I'm, I'm trying to create that moment with also trying to be historically accurate and throw out like a thesis. Here's the thing. It's about intuition, but you also have to try to be brave. And I have to tell you, I have one incident. I did a big show about the, the art of the 80s in 2005 at the Museum for Gegenwartskunst. It was the whole building from top to bottom with the mm-hmm. 80s. And I felt, you know, I was a young man in his early 30s. I also did like a roundtable discussion and Werner Büttner, Kasper Koenig and Benjamin Buchler, Thomas Ruff and, and Isabel Graf and many people showed up and I was moderating all that. And I, I remember the moment when they all came in and I was a little, oh my God, how did I manage that? And then I had this moment for the exhibition also, you know, because everybody, all the artists were so particular, but I had this Katharina Fritsch table. It was like a huge table that she made for the Dusseldorf Academy as her MFA Abschlussklasse Werk. And then I had Alan McCollum and it was like a huge, like a frieze of Alan McCollum pieces. I remember I, I put them next to each other and I felt, oh my God, he's going to kill me as soon as he sees the, but he loved it. And I felt, okay, I'm just doing it. You know, if they, if he's going to eat me up alive, I don't care. And then he sent me the loveliest, Alan sent me the loveliest, he didn't come to the opening, but he sent me the loveliest email, how great it is and how much he admires Katarina Fritsch. I was just so convinced in my mind that the work is so different for some reason. Obviously, there are connections, but their their work started in very different contexts, different places. That's like a small example, but I think many examples, you know, whenever you don't fully understand something, but your intuition tells you it could be interesting to do it as an exhibition maker or in an exhibition context, this is the way to just do it. And then you visually probably understand it. It's like a holistic Mm. practice. You have to throw it out there and then be brave enough and then wait. And even if you get criticized for it, you try it and you try to understand it. And I think I, I try to make it highly personal and hope that people also like it. Because I think that's the only way to, you know, you have to be fully convinced by what you're doing. Yes, you're only yourself. Exactly. So that's the best that you just do what you yourself think is good and the best and just trust mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. There's like a thread that's running through and I have to say, I was always interested in working with collections because I felt it is about reconstructing history and thinking about the past and how things are connected. Nowadays, we live in a different time, you know, because of the internet and things look alike, but even if they're completely different and you put them next to each other in a museum, doesn't really make sense to me. I always try to be highly specific. You have to be precise. Yeah, exactly. A friend of mine, she always says, well, I only could say the German word, which, which is Trennschärfe. Yeah, total. Which means you really like be really precise and not say, oh, it's all the same. It doesn't matter. You know, but to say, no, it's not all the same. And, and actually it matters. It totally does because it has to do, even if it looks the same, but it comes from a completely different mm. attitude, artistic attitude. It's not interesting to make an analogy that is just visual, but doesn't correspond with the intention of an artist. No, absolutely. And also it is history It can be re-evaluated, but history still, it happened at one time in a certain context. Yeah, totally. And we can't just say, oh, no, it was not there or it didn't exist or this context was there and we can reinterpret it, but still we can't uh, neglect it. No, no, absolutely. And that's interesting. And I think those are some really interesting questions also when you think about diversity mm-hmm. and you think about adding some works or artists to a canon 
But what happens, I mean, if their work has not been seen and hasn't been discussed at the time, but, you know, you just add it to the context, what happens? I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm just saying, you know, there's a discourse. And of course, you can say, well, there's like a, like a, a dominant culture that pressures the discourse. But you have to be careful. You know, there are many, many artists whose work wasn't seen because of political and social circumstances or geographical, geopolitical circumstances. If I think of someone like uh, Alina Saposhnikov, who was a big star in Paris and, and, and then went back to Poland and completely disappeared. And just was rediscovered a, a couple of years ago. But totally legitimately, because that was circumstances, you know, that kind of shut down the work. I mean, that happens. That's a different thing. But she was part of a conversation. But nowadays, I think there are so many people who try to bypass the system of authority And sometimes it comes from a good place. Sometimes it comes from a selfish commercial place. Exactly. And this is where precision comes in. Yeah. And this is also okay because I think everything can be discussed and everything can be contextualized, but nothing should be censored, for example. No, exactly. That's exactly the point. We are just starting to talk about this, that we are actually in a time of major changes, which mean opportunities, but um, also challenges. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think the most important changes we will be facing, like especially in the art community, or we are facing right now? Well, there are very practical issues we're facing. There are many issues, you know, for a museum. It's like the Anglo-Saxon American discourse mm -hmm. is very, very different from the continental European one. And I think sometimes, you know, there is the desire to appropriate the Anglo-Saxon discourse that's based on a completely different reality. You know, for example, in the US, I think the museums are currently going through a major crisis. I think some of these changes are absolutely necessary and important. Well, it's difficult. I think, again, you know, you have to be very specific for the situation. What's the situation in a city like Los Angeles, for yeah. example, versus... Mönchengladbach, you know, you have a very different sociopolitical situation. You have a different diversity is not based on racial uh, distinctions. It's, it's based on, on maybe immigrant population versus middle class Germany. It's a very different constellation on reality than, than we have here or that, for example, South Korea has, you know, and so I think you can't generalize The diversity discourse, it's always been super problematic. But I think the museums should be open, should represent everyone, mm -hmm. of course. They need to do more. There are many people who have been neglected. For example, I mean, one of the most fabulous artists is Jack Whitten. I knew about his work because uh, his work was in Mocha's collection, and I learned about it when I moved here. And then I saw the first show years before he was picked up by a major gallery. But it was kind of obvious that this guy and this work is so magical. It needed someone like Mark Bradford to realize that African-American abstraction has been around for quite a while, since the 60s. And Jack Whitten is one of the major artists who fell through the cracks. But he fell through the cracks. Here's the thing, you know, like in Europe, many of these artists, they are in the collections and they are being shown in the collections here in L.A., in Washington, D.C., in New York. But people in, in, in Europe, for example, never heard mm -hmm. about him. Which changed And also. that has changed. Absolutely. And, that's a, and I think that's a really good thing. But at some point, you know, we also have to realize the pond is not that deep and there are not that many people. 
I'm very, very curious where this is all going. I think it was an interesting process, you know, to go through mm. that and to think about underrepresented, also political activist strategies, tie them to the museum, make the museum as a place of democracy and participation. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's naive to deny that the museum has always been a place of power and bourgeoisie and representation at the same time. And this is not necessarily a bad thing because art has been tied to the money since Machiavelli and since like the, the very early times. Yeah, since the Renaissance at least. Absolutely. And before that, it was the church. So I think it is interesting to open that up, to claim territory and get a sliver of the power. Or also beat that the museums are these ambiguous places that represent both status but also participation. And I think there is a lot we can do, we can think about. And I think many museums who have been working in a way that they added like one exhibition after the other without thinking what their mission is, it might be a good break for them to just rethink the mission. But on the other hand, also, we have to see, you know, you can't compensate everything through the museums at the moment, especially in the US. It feels like uh, the colleges and the museums are being seen as these institutions that are compensating all the mess that's out there. And I think this is a, a nice utopian thought, but it's also kind of, it's not the reality, unfortunately. And if, if you push the museum against the wall that you, for example, alienate the trustees or say, oh, this trustee has money in this and this company, so he has to leave the board. All this is, is, is much more complicated because you can't assume that the tax money you get from the city or from a state is wider than the money from the guy on the board. It's just not whitewashed. Yeah, that is, that is a really super interesting and super difficult discussion. And I think the big task is really that we adjust to these kind of discussions and that we are still able to listen to each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a big task. But we were talking now a lot about museums. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> I just realized that. And As you are now president and partner of uh, Marion Goodman Galleries Worldwide, I believe really that quite some of those commercial galleries, they create absolute meaningful cultural value. And they also have their own creative process, but still it's not like super common that people with a museum and institutional history like you chooses then to really become partner at a gallery, even if it's one of the most important ones. So what are the advantages, but also disadvantages of working within gallery structures compared, for example, to institutional structures? Well, I have to say, as you mentioned, you know, Marion Goodman is a very special gallery. And I had the opportunity earlier in my life, you know, to join a big gallery. And I said no, because I didn't want that. And I wasn't interested in transitioning in the so-called commercial sector. But I felt with Marion, You know, it just happened. The stars were like aligned and she invited me to, maybe maybe I can just tell you the story quickly how this happened. Absolutely, please. You know, she invited me and said, Philip, I would like you to guest curate a show. And I said to Marion, you know, I don't want to bring like a young artist. I would like to do something historical. How about we do a show about Lothar Baumgarten? She's been showing his work since he won the Golden Lion in Venice in 1984. And I said, you know, the American audience doesn't really know the early work that he showed at Conrad Fischer in Dusseldorf in the late 60s when he was a student of Joseph Beuys, early 70s. 
Lothar Baumgarten had big shows, you know, at the Guggenheim Museum in the early 90s. But I really wanted to work on an early Baumgarten show. And I didn't really know which button I pushed at the time because Marion was very, very close to Lothar. I worked with him before. I heard about his work when I was, I think, 19, that this guy went to Venezuela to live in 77 with these uh, natives. And I was so touched by this. And I thought, it's, this is another thing. It's like a thread that runs through my whole life. And then Marion said to me, I knew Marion from, from the openings. I knew who she was. I knew that she was this amazing lady who is very close also to academia. You know, when you go to her dinners, there's Benjamin Buklo, Hal Foster. She supports artists and is a really meaningful, wonderful lady. And she said, Philip, if you do that, can we travel together? And I was just a guest curator of a summer show. And I said, sure. And so Marion and I started to travel together over like maybe one and a wow. half years. We went to Berlin a few times. And had an amazing time. And then she kind of lured me in there. said, why don't you work for me? You can tell me what you want to do. You just tell me. And we liked each other. And it was really wonderful. And then I got more and more involved. I remember there was a moment. And I think that was my invisible job interview. You know, after like a year, we were sitting in her office in New York. And John Baldessari was on the phone. Marin was like taking a nap while I had to negotiate with John as the guest curator of the summer show, when his exhibition is going to be on the schedule. And I knew John from LA, but so all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I'm already like one <laughs> foot in there. And so I decided at some point, I said, you know what, what am I waiting for? I saw it as an interesting, as I described it in the beginning, like an interesting tool to get somewhere else and to learn something. And I have to say, I haven't regretted it. I, I joined as my first title was like chief executive director for programs and artists. I was still a little hesitant to be fully in the gallery world. So I was more like the content manager. And I have to say now I'm mostly, of course, in, indirectly, I'm involved in sales. And I also talk to museums all the times, but I'm kind of, I feel I'm doing what I did before, but I'm closer to production. It feels like I'm sitting on the other side of the table, closer mm -hmm. to the artist, making decisions about edition size, presentation, strategies for exhibitions, museum acquisitions, you know, like things. I know both sides very, very well. And I have to say, many museum people are dismissive against gallery people. And I had to learn that many of also, of my colleagues who make the sales are absolutely dedicated to, to the artist and have a passion that sometimes comes from a different angle. They're closer to production than to academia and thought and writing. And but so what? I mean, I have to say they burn for what they're doing and they feel totally committed. And I have to say I have great respect for whoever there is in the system. And I honestly think, and this is not a try to make it simple for myself, but I feel it's not so much about the distinction between the commercial versus the non-commercial is not that important. I think it's really about someone like Marion takes a much bigger risk than many museum curators financially, also with her reputation and everything. And I have to say it's more about the distinction is more about people who have integrity and people who don't. Oh, that is so true. And I always have the feeling we're all in that boat together and it all matters. If it's artists, if it's curators, mm -hmm. galleries, museums, institutions, it's one, one art world and we just have to yeah, make the best of it. Absolutely. And I have to say, you know, when you're on the museum side, you always try to fight for the museum. You try to get a good deal 
for the museum and, and you're expecting the artist to agree, which is all, I mean, I've done that so many times and you have to beg for money, you know, to have yeah. the funds to acquire something. And when you're on the other side, it's so interesting. You know, we have very successful artists we work with, Julie Meritu, Tassida Dean, Nairi Bagrami, and it's the German artists we work with. We give them everything they want if they have a show with us. And so sometimes it's difficult. They come to an institution and the institution can't really provide the context. And I, I have to say what I really like about it is, A, we have a very kind of, you know, like a high high expectations. We publish books. We just published, we had a Francesca Woodman show and I asked Chris Krauss to write a beautiful essay. And the nice thing is, you know, you don't have to ask, okay, which foundation are we going to approach? You can just do it. And you offer like a salary or like a fee for a writer that's decent. And that's not like 600 euros. When you're at the museum, you offer these fees and the essay in the very end is like an absolutely amazing essay. So sometimes the circumstances to do work, meaningful work, are better in a, in a gallery context. I hate to say it. I absolutely understand. I mean, money can also mean more freedom, more opportunity. Absolutely. Mm. Philip, the last question maybe. I don't know if you like that, but <laughs> you'll be 50 next year. and Oh my God, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> and so there is quite something already to look back on, but also there's maybe what I think still the best to come. So what are you most looking forward to in the upcoming years? <laughs> it's a nice question. You know, it's a little scary when you turn 50. I no, don't worry. Say, it's easy. <laughs> yeah. It's easy. <laughs> um, well, you know, I always think, look, that's the problem when you live in a place like, I mean, I've lived in LA for almost 15 years, but I was like in Cologne in between. But I have to say, when you live in a place like Los Angeles or in the US, then you always know there is Europe. You know, it's sometimes you have something additional, you have a second reality, a second context, but at the same time, you have to make sure that you don't get lost. And so all my desires sometimes is going back and forth. Oh, I'm staying in LA and it's so interesting. But then I also have the fantasy of going back to Europe. It jumps back and forth. So I don't really know. You know, when you're older, maybe things are getting easier. I really like to be freelance, to do shows with museums. But I have to say what I'm doing right now, and I really want to do it for the next few years because I think it's absolutely meaningful. And I feel I work like a freelance person. I'm based in LA. I'm in New York all the time, once a month. And I think it's challenging and, and really interesting to think about the possibility of taking a gallery with its history and pushing it into the next stage of the future, you know, and think this is kind of a new situation. It hasn't happened so many times that a gallery that was established by an owner, Marion Goodman is now 93 yeah. and she's in very good health. So she will be around for a long time, I hope, but you never know. So, you know, we're kind of pushing this into a different direction, but we want to keep the same values and just adjust it for the future. And I think this is a really interesting experiment. And so at the moment, I don't have the desire to think about other, other places. Whenever I get contacted by a museum to apply, I think, oh, I could do that. But it always sounds so good. But then when you sit there at the desk and you have to deal with all this new reality, it's very exhausting. No, you have probably more freedom. So as I, when I understand you correctly, 
as a human being, as a person, and also as an art historian, curator, and partner, and president, you're just at the right place right now. I hope so. I think it's really interesting because, you know, I can see artists. I still feel, yeah, I feel a lot of freedom. And I think this is important to push your own life and also to do new things and to try to access new territories. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Philip. Of course. Very welcome. Thank you. For more information on Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast, follow us on Instagram at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf. Visit our website van-horn.net and subscribe to Voices on Art on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>